Hi, I'm Bill Gaither, and welcome to More Than the Music, a podcast where you can join me for conversations with some of the most interesting people I know. Each episode features a special guest who has inspired me in some way during my 50 years in the music industry. You'll meet incredible artists, writers, and comedians, sports figures, and other folks I'm grateful to call my friends. Join me now for this week's episode of More Than the Music. It's going to be good. This podcast from the beginning has been uh, friends of Bill Gaither, I guess. I don't even know whether we've got a title or not. But uh, the people who wanted me to do this said, you have touched base with a lot of interesting characters through your life if you live this long enough. And uh, this particular character, I really have not known that long, maybe about a year and a half ago when we first uh, touched base. And he is the pastor of the Madison Park Church of God, Anderson, Indiana. He doesn't look like a pastor. He doesn't act like a pastor. <laughs> and I met him at Starbucks over a cup of coffee and and I just said, this is a person I wanted to get to know better. His name is Paul Strozier. Paul, it's good to have you here. Hey, thanks, Bill. It's great to be here and, and to be considered uh, one of your unique friends and also the anti-pastor pastor. <laughs> you know, the whole pastoring thing has changed since I first started. They were always in a white shirt and a tie, and they looked like a preacher. They looked like a pastor. When you came in... What are you, six foot two, six foot three? Six four. Six four. <laughs> Looks like you played a couple games of football somewhere <laughs> in your past. <laughs> and just a regular guy over a cup of coffee. It was just a wonderful conversation just to get to know you and where you came from. It's been a blessing, man. It's been it's been great to get to know you better in our conversations. Uh, our uh, sitting in your car for an hour at the time, listening to tracks. <laughs> the other, and the, yeah, the other thing that we had in common, and this, and 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 I take a lot of pride in telling people I have friends outside the music circle. In fact, uh, there are a lot of interesting people in the music circle, but there are a lot of boring people too. So, <laughs> so if you want some variety in life, you've got to find some sports people, some theologians in your life, some just regular folks who uh, eat down at the uh, Highway Cafe and. Alexandria, uh, Indiana, but the music thing with me after we had had some serious discussions about some other things was you said you played in a rock and roll band or something like that, wouldn't you? Well, I I loved music forever. Yeah. In fact, I, I felt like God called me to be a, a what we called it in those days a song leader. Yeah, you know, back when I was five years old. Yeah. Uh, I went a circuitous route toward yeah. that, but I did serve as a worship pastor for about 20 years before becoming a senior pastor. That's not a bad background. One of my one of my mentors back in the early days was a guy by the name Church of God folks knew him very well. He was Doug Oldham's father. Oh, yes. Now, people knew Doug in a broader church, but Dale Oldham in the Church of God was the radio speaker and a brilliant speaker and—, and uh, and in the process, every now and then when Doug would sing a song, he'd get up and sing with him. And I said, I said to him one time, because I knew him only as a theologian and a serious man of God behind the pulpit. 
And I said, Dale, you like music, don't you? He said, oh, yeah. And he had written a couple, three songs, too. So that's not a bad background to, uh, to be a pastor or a preacher? No, it's really not. You know, when I, was, when I was in seminary and I was preparing to move into a preaching pastorate, into a senior pastorate, mm-hmm. I was talking to one of my professors, and she said, you know, she said, Paul, a, a teaching pastor shows people the Word, but a, but a worship pastor, a singing pastor, shows people God's heart. <laughs> and, I, and I thought that was pretty good, and I want to keep a piece of that, you know? When Gloria and I were first married, one of our one of our best sources of growth, of spiritual growth, it was a guy by the name of Elton Trueblood, Doctor Trueblood, mm-hmm. and he said the real Christian can both think and pray at the same time. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I've always liked people who understand the mystery of the faith, because you have got to. You've got to understand the mystery if if you want to be a real follower of Christ, because there's it, it's the glorious impossible idea, <laughs> yeah. you know, and they understand that. But at the same time, they've got a good head, and they ask they ask the right question. That day when we were talking, an interesting thing happened because another very close person in my life came in and uh, was giving me an update on her son and and the problem with alcohol. And uh, you kind of lit up, and he said, I understand it. And I said to you, why do you understand it? And you said, I've been there. And that was interesting to me. You, ne- you mean you're a pastor, and you have dealt with uh, alcohol in, in, in your past? You said yes. You want to talk about it a little bit? Yeah, I... Uh... I, by the grace of God, am a very grateful recovering addict, alcoholic. Um, I, Bill, I was raised in the church. You know, I was, I was, I'm not, I'm not a young guy anymore, but I was still raised on some of your music. And, <laughs> um, growing up in the South, you know, we had our, we had our gospel quartets and all sure. night sings. And uh, I was in the church all the time. I felt like Lord gripped my heart when I was four or five years old. But I became an adolescent, and I started running the other direction, and there was some influence I allowed in my life, and I started uh, doing all those things I said I would never do. And by the time I was 26 years old, my life had fallen completely apart, and uh, I'd lost everything. And uh, God came to me. You know, it's my, my favorite verse in Scripture in Luke 15, 20, and while he was yet a long way off, the Father ran out to meet him. And uh, that's my story. And, and my story is that God then began to put back all those things that he had put into my heart when I was four and five and six years old that I thought I had completely wasted everything. And he, you know, he brought me back to him, and then he brought me back to a place in his family, and then he brought me back to a place in his service. And uh, I'm just here as a living testimony that God loves uh, broken people. And I'm not so sure... Now, I haven't traveled that path, but I'm not so sure that that he can't speak maybe better through our brokenness than, uh, than for the people who seemingly have had it all together. I'll never forget, as a kid growing up, every now and then we'd have singing groups that would come in, and from time to time, there would be this perfect mother and father with perfect three or four or five kids who all played some kind of instrument, a violin or a guitar, 
and they were dressed up to the T, and sometimes they would be, <clears throat> you know, teenagers. And as I as a, as a kid, I said that looks too good to be true, and many times <laughs> it was too good to be true <laughs> because kids just don't come in nice little cookie-sized packages like that, do they? Yeah, and you know, I always want to be careful to 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 celebrate the people who have never strayed from the sure, faith. I, sure. I think that's the powerhouse testimony you know, right there. That's a powerful thing. But um, we've got to be more open with the faults and failures and struggles that, that we have had because the truth is in this culture, in the culture we live in now, what people look for above all else is authenticity. And, and we make a better connection for the reality of the impact Jesus can have by sharing honestly about our struggles and challenges more than we do about what we may think are our you know successes. Um, people need people who have a, a real God who makes a real difference in real life. When I think of addiction, I always I, I always ask the question, why? I mean, why does it start? Peer pressure, depression, aloneness. What uh, uh, in your case? What was it? Well, I think I think most of us who are in what I would call recovery circles, you know, people working with addiction recovery and that kind of thing, we'd say there's not really an explanation to that. You know, I I drink because I'm an alcoholic. I use drugs because I'm an addict, and I found that that addictive nature will carry over into you know other parts of my life but, but, as but, well. But what started it? What opened the door for me? Um, I think I think there was a there was that kind of intrigue in my life, even as twelve and thirteen year old boy. But when someone I trusted offered me something that before that point I had thought was off limits, you know what I mean? That's yeah. what that's what opened the door for me to for me to walk through, and it began that struggle with addiction. Was part of it because you wanted to belong to to, to a group of people who, who that that was their lifestyle? I think for a lot of people, that's that's what they're looking for is the belonging. For me, as I look back, uh, for me personally, I think it was more of escapism. Um, I, I was uh, and and a lot of it. And I share this in my testimony. Um, I had a kind of an awkward view of God that I think a lot of people have, and that is uh, that that God is mad at us and angry at us, and uh, it's kind of the sinners in the hands of an angry God thing. And um, as I grew, that wasn't something that I could I could live with. And so the the more I, I was aware of my failure, then the more I thought God didn't like me and I didn't like myself. And I couldn't live with that possibility, so I continued to escape it. And what the substance abuse did was it gave me a way to numb those feelings of not being acceptable and not being accepted. Um, and I think that's what caused me to kind of spiral down into that place. It was, you know, it's certainly not what started it, but I think it's what kept that addiction going is that I couldn't live with myself and think that I was unacceptable to God. Does that, does that make sense? And so my turnaround point for me came when I began to see God differently, and I began to see God's view of me differently. And when I began to dare to believe that God loved me even though I was a failure, 
that that didn't change his opinion of me. Now he had greater plans for me, you know. Yeah. So I'm not saying he was affirming or approving of my sin, but he loved me even as I was a sinner. And and it was in opening my life to begin to accept the radical possibility that God could love me as a sinner that then opened the door out of sin. You know, the tension from the beginning of Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace, you know. And, and you know, the, one of the most popular songs, secular or Christian, the one song that seemed like the whole world knows is Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. It's amazing the number of Hollywood movies still come out with that, you know, that theme. It seems to be about as standard as maybe Glory, Glory, Hallelujah or uh, White Christmas. I mean, it's it's a very recognizable song across the world. So we hear it, and we've heard so much about, about grace and the importance of grace. But... And for me, that was never any problem as a kid. I, I, I came to Christ as a kid mainly through a positive channel. I wasn't, I wasn't afraid that he was going to beat me up. I wasn't going to afraid that—I wasn't even afraid I was going to burn forever. I, 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 that, that, I came to God as a kid mainly because I went to the church where my grandma and grandpa worshiped. And on Sunday mornings, they would sing songs that really would move the people in the congregation. Sometimes, sometimes they'd have tears running down their cheeks. And I can remember as a kid, I said, I don't, I don't know what that is, but I want some of that, whatever that is. And it seemed like that was my motivating force. So, and I've heard many people who said, I grew up with the concept of... Uh, of that kind of God, I, I still can see the picture in my Sunday school room of Jesus gently knocking on a door or his arms. <laughs> and I'm grateful for that because at my church, there was a lot of hell, fire, and brimstone going on too that seemingly did not have much of appeal to me. I don't <laughs> well, I, I tell you, man, I love what you shared about that. I think that's why Jesus says, unless you humble yourself like one of these little children, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because you've got to come to that kind of place, whether you do it as a child or you do it as an adult, you have to come to that kind of place where you're willing to dare to believe that you're loved unconditionally. Now, when I, when I was four or five years old and I accepted Jesus, I saw that same thing. And I'm blessed, I'm really blessed, and I know that, that as an adult, I had a foundation to come back to. Yeah. Um, and it was that foundation. It really, you know, and I know some people struggle with this, but the turning point for me came when I was in a long-term rehab for my drug addiction. Were you, um, were you an AA? Yes, I was involved in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. Um, and in the 12 steps of... Alcoholics Anonymous, yeah, uh, which are based on the Sermon on the Mount, the Book of James. It really is. You know, I, I've I have heard Bill W. his own testimony. I have a recording of that where he, where he shared that. And in in the third step, um, he says we 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 made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, as we understood Him. And and so many of us struggle with that as we understood Him part. But for me, in my personal testimony. I began to ask myself how I understood God. 
And when I went back, and I and I went back through before I thought God hated me, before, and I remember as an adolescent when I first started being involved in drugs and alcohol and those things, lying awake at night waiting for my bed to fall through the floor into the pits of hell, before that kind of fear, the purest thing I remembered as a child was the simplicity of Jesus loves me, this I know. And and that, for me, Bill, that was the turning point of my life. Not, I knew I was a sinner, you know? Yeah. I knew I was messed up. I, I had no no question about that. But but to remember that God is a God of love and that's his character. More Than the Music is sponsored by the folks at the Game Show Network. You know, these days, it seems like every time you turn on the television, there's something that makes you want to shout back at the screen. Well, at the Game Show Network, that's the whole point, but in a good way. They're dedicated to creating family-friendly play-along and laugh-along games that will have the whole family getting in on the competition. Whether you're watching their classic games in the morning or their block of all the original shows from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. every weekday, it's a great way to bring everyone together in one place and on one screen. If you're looking for entertainment that the whole family can enjoy together, the answer is the Game Show Network. Now, you were uh, how old uh, when when you were involved in alcohol? I started uh, around 13 years of age, and, and that I, and that continued to win. I was 26 when I when I went into long term rehab. Uh, now, were you married by then? I'd been married five years, and I had a toddler, and that was part of the catalyst uh, for it. My wife, uh, after a lot of years, you know, Marianne will share her testimony. A lot of years of screaming and yelling, and you know, beating on my chest. Uh, one night. Um, in the midst of a binge, she just walked out with our son and and came back and by the grace of God came back and said, "If you don't get help, we're gone." And and it wasn't angry and it wasn't manipulative and it wasn't controlling. I realized she was taking responsibility for herself and this was it. So at this point, were you functioning in a church? Were you directing music in a church? No, 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 no. I was not involved in the ministry. What? So what were you doing vocationally then? Well, I, I was working in the theater. Yeah. Uh, I was an actor and director. Um, and then uh, I went from there into sales and sales management and I was involved in the automobile business. Yeah, and it was the it was the money I started making in the automobile business that allowed me to go so far over the edge <laughs> that I couldn't couldn't live that way anymore. Talk to me about about a you know I've heard the phrase a functioning alcoholic. You can get up every morning, you can go to work. So so did you drink during the day or was it in the evening or what? My my struggle was really more with uh, with drugs. Alcohol was a a part of that. Um, but alcohol for me was never what, what we would call my drug of choice. Um, I, I didn't like the effects of that. In fact, some of my drug abuse, uh, really a catalyst for that was trying to kind of level out alcohol and, you know, trying to overcome some of the effects of alcohol and it just all spiraled in together. Now I was, I was at that time, um, very actively using drugs 24 Seven. Uh, uh, I was still working in a management position. Now, how did that change your behavior? When I got sober? No, no, no. 
during the time that you were using heavy dose? Well, you know, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. So, (laughs) 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 you know, we have an amazing ability to convince ourselves we're doing okay when everybody else around us knows we're not. Uh, No pain, no gain, right? Yeah, well, I, you know, the story I would tell is, hey, we're having a good time, this isn't hurting anybody and all this. Now, looking back, the reality was... I was bankrupt. I was losing my family. So you were financially bankrupt. I had started embezzling from yeah. my employer. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. I, yeah, we were destroying everything. Everything was falling apart. And I remember, and I don't like to talk about the specifics of the drugs because yeah. that can be triggers, but yeah. I, I remember being with a person toward the end and and using drugs, and even as we were using them, looking at each other going, well, there went the house payment. Well, there went the car payment. Ooh, brother. Was, because it's costly. The, the, oh, the, yes. the habit's very costly. Yes. And and it's costly not just financially, it's it's costly in every it will rob everything from you. How long of a period did it take when you finally said, I'm gonna do something about this with the help of God? Well, even even the beginning of that, I wasn't on the right track. You know, I mentioned to you that I thought, for me, um, a lot of my drug abuse was escapist. Yeah. So at first, uh, I think rehab for me was the same thing. I, I had the thought, in those days, you know, insurance would pay for a 28-day hospital inpatient yeah. stay. And uh, I think I had the thought, well, I'll escape my problems. I'll go into the hospital. I'll watch soap operas and eat jello. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the first morning at 6 a.m., it wasn't the case. So it Was that a lockdown situation? Yeah, it was. So you couldn't go out for how, how many days? I was, uh, I was 28 days in the hospital, and then uh, I was just so good, they sent me to graduate rehab. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they took a look at me, and I had, a, I had a wise person God put in my life who was a physician, my attending physician, was in recovery himself. And uh, he said, Paula, I think I think if we let you go, you're going to walk back out there and go right back to the same lifestyle, and I'm going to strongly recommend you go to a long-term facility. Okay, and how long was that? I went for another two months to uh, a place in in Jackson, Mississippi, um, an old fish camp out in the middle of nowhere. um, (laughs) Summer or winter? It got real. Uh, That was in the fall. So so the weather wasn't an issue. Yeah, yeah. And... uh, it was a it was a place that specialized in in uh, addiction treatment for uh, people in the medical profession, and um, I think my doctor was familiar with it, and he got me in, and that's where real recovery began to happen. That that first season was more detox. Okay, now we're into what two or three months now. Yeah, I was right? in for about three months total. Okay, and then you come out. Then what happens? What's the next step? Well, we started putting life back together. And uh, Marianne will tell you, we will tell you, it was actually harder for a little while. Uh, we had never known each other sober. <laughs> I, oh, now you say we. That was, my was, my was wife. She, particip- she participated up until the time she got pregnant with our son. Yeah. And when she got pregnant with our son, she quit, which was part of what put the highlight on me continuing to use. I didn't understand quitting. Yeah. You know, and uh, I was I was 16 years old when I met her. Um, I was an early admission freshman uh, yeah. at college, and uh, 
she had never known me sober, and I'd never known her. And uh, you know what? You are fortunate. I am blessed by God Be, because many, many people who get married like that, and that's not a real world. And, and when they become sober, they say, "Who in the world have I married here?" Right? That's exactly right. And when I when I first came out of rehab, and we were still doing, I'll tell you, we got a lot of counseling. We got a lot of people investing in us, and it's priceless. But our first meeting with a counselor, he looked at us and said, "You may not be able to stay together and stay sober." Uh-huh. And uh, you know, part of it was the stubbornness of commitment that said. We said this for is forever, and we and we think it is. And then very quickly, one of the blessings I had, and I know not everybody has this blessing, Marianne also had roots in her relationship with Jesus and a family who loved the Lord in the church. So when when it was time to come back, we both had something to come back to. It was something we both knew all along that we, we needed and wanted to turn our lives over to Jesus. I, I, I'll often share with it, I know it, it can be a little bit challenging. I, I believe I had honestly accepted Jesus as my Savior early in my life, but I had not accepted Him as my Lord. And and getting sober at that point in my adult life was the time that Jesus became our Lord and began to take control of our lives. And that's what held us together. I'll never forget Reuben Welch, a wonderful theologian, says, We like the God what zaps us. We, we struggle with the God that says, obey. And the second step, I mean, it's great. Uh, and, and I don't think miraculous change can happen. Maybe it can. But I don't think mirac- miraculous change can happen without that mysterious thing that I think only Christ can do. And the reason I keep doing what I'm doing at this age is I believe he is the answer. And I don't I don't care how tough the problem is. Okay, okay, so we're back at the marriage now saying, okay, and how are we going to make this work? So what is your next step? Vocationally, you got a baby that likes to eat. You got to put food on the table. So what are you doing here? Are you still working at the at, at the car business? I was. Uh, I went, in fact, in while I was in rehab, I made arrangements to go talk to my employer, uh, confessed to him what I had done, made arrangements for restitution, and um, he was very gracious and generous and allowed me to do that and still wanted me in his employment. And um, so... Honesty is still the best policy. Well, it really is. It really, <laughs> I mean, just... And even if he hadn't, that's what I needed to do, yes. you know, for, for me and for my life. So it's amazing, you know, back to that grace thing, how much grace we will experience from other people, other human beings, if we'll just be open and honest and direct and humble about that and, and willing to, I went to him and said, I'm willing to do whatever you want. If you want to press charges, I'm willing to surrender to that. If, if I can repay you, I'll repay you. If, if I, I'm at your mercy, you know. That's great stuff. Well, so he he kept a job for me. And then not only that, six months out of rehab, he got a new franchise and uh, sent me with the management team, relocated my family down to Florida to, to run that, that new store. And that's where we got back involved with God's church. Okay, so how long did you work in Florida 
uh, with this company? I was with that company uh, a little over a year in Florida, and uh, almost two. And in the course of that time, uh, we got involved in the church, and it was the the First Church of God in Vero Beach, Florida. Uh, The neat story about how that happened, our, our our son was like three years old, four years old. And one day, um, Marianne said something to him. He had a new jacket. And she said, oh, Andrew, that looks like Joseph and his coat of many colors. And and he said, who? And we said, it's time to get in church. <laughs> so you started there uh, in the music side of it? We got involved, and a friend of yours was the worship pastor. That's where I met Danny Daniels. Oh, what a great uh, young man! Yeah. yeah, Danny was the worship pastor there. We were so we had been out of the church so so disconnected for so long. We stumbled in that church by accident, and they began to take us under their wing. and And I share this with our folks. They began to tell us what to do, and we began to do it. And that's discipleship. And we were so disconnected. Somebody said, oh, you know Danny Daniels. He co-wrote I've Just Seen Jesus. <laughs> and we said, what's that? And they said, oh, you know that, that song that Sandy and Larnell sang? I said, who are they? I mean, that's how disconnected we were at the time. Yeah. But they took us under their wing, man. They, they loved us and cared about us and taught us and then began to give us uh, opportunity to serve. When Danny found out I had a background in the, in the theater, we began to do productions together. First thing we staged was in the gardens. And uh, uh, yeah, so then that was just God began to, to you know, pursue his, his plan of restoration and redemption. And for you uh, folks who might not uh, know that title, it, it's not in the garden, it's in the gardens. And it was talking about three separate gardens and it's Gloria at her best. It really is. I really think, and one of the gardens, of course, was the Garden of Gethsemane. I think one of the very best concepts of what was in the cup that Jesus drank and just about stopped him down physically, in fact, What's the scripture that supports that? You're the pastor, Paul, that his system shut down. Yes, yeah. yes, and that he was to that point of he was basically leaking blood at that at that point in time. It was so intense for him. And you know, people talk about Calvary, and, and Calvary mm-hmm. obviously is, is 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 you know it's I mean that's a terrible terrible death. But in Gethsemane, the night before, he was actually. And she describes it like this. He felt every pain of every sin from the beginning of time, and then she started spelling it out. <laughs> and imagine, imagine me, you know, just a couple of years out of my life completely falling apart and reading those words and hearing those words, and, and they gave me the privilege. You want to know what song I got to sing in that musical? What? what? Canceled Worthy. Canceled <laughs> <laughs> and, and Bill, I couldn't even say I'm not a tenor. Yeah. I couldn't sing that, but my heart was in it. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, you know, you know how much I, I, I love Gloria. But even beyond that, I just admire her. Con- I had never heard that concept in this cup. And of course, she's a poet, and she kept coming back to in this cup. There was every kid who's ever hid behind a door, afraid. Of, of yes. a drunken father who had come home. In this cup, there was every, there was a pain of every 
you know, you of every uh, young gal who took the life, you know, of her unborn baby, you know, and in this, and he drank it all. Drank for it all. And for some reason, I understood that at a level. That I had. In this cup, there was Paul Strozier who had yes. <laughs> literally messed up his yes. life pretty badly. And he took it all. And he took it and he drank it. And more than that, restored a marriage that probably was going on the rocks, right? Yes. We just, uh, we just celebrated 40 years last fall together, okay. 40 years of marriage. Now, friends, that's the good news. Oh, the gospel. Amen. <laughs> now, could, a, could, a, could that have happened through other sources? Probably so. But I only know this story, and this is the story that I will tell, you know, with my very last breath, with every bit of energy Amen. that I have. Yeah. You did not evidently deal with depression. I, I did. Mm-hmm. Much of my... Um, Real dealing with depression actually came uh, once I was sober. Uh, oh. I've had a, had a couple of serious <laughs> bouts with that yeah. uh, while I've been in the ministry. Because you didn't have the leveler, uh, 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 drugs at that point would, uh, uh, would, uh, would help you. That Dr. Dr. Archibald Hart has written a lot on depression. He is a uh, psychiatrist. And... Um, we were with him one time for a period of time, and I told him, I said, uh, I understand depression because most artists do. And I said, it's like a cloud that comes in on the sunniest day there is, and it's for no reason at all. It's just hanging over your head, and it's nebulous, and you can't put your finger on what in the world is causing this. I thought I was the only one that experienced that, and I'm not dropping a name here until I talked to Terry Bradshaw one time. And he said, I could win the Super Bowl on a Sunday, and on Tuesday night I'd be in the bar, you know, drinking. And, I'm, uh, and, and so I said to him, but I, I said, so I understand depression, but evidently mine was not clinical because I didn't have to medicate for it, to which he said, don't kid me, Bill. Your work is your pill. Mm. And I said, guilty, I guess. I Because uh, I, anybody that knows me, we're in a studio here. The only mistress I've ever had in our 57 years of marriage is a studio. <laughs> because there, there are times when I was spending more time in the studio that probably that I, that I was spending with, because I just love to put music together with the lyrics and all of that. And I told him, I said, you know, guilty. I understand that. And then I said to her, well, that isn't bad, is it? And he said, well, it isn't bad unless that is all you got going for you. He said, I said, what should I do? He said, widen your pleasure center. Mm. (laughs) And I did. I started reading more. I started spending more time with my kids. I started because I love I love work. You know me. You know I. You know I love work. But in thinking about the addiction thing, I think with a lot of people that, uh, that I have talked to, I've heard them say, uh, I, "I started drinking because the pain. Uh, you know, the pain was just too great. The world I was living in was just too tough." Or I started doing the drug or whatever. 
Yeah, and I, I think, you know, the, the thing for us to be aware of, when, when we hear people's stories like that, it's easy to think about, here's, here's how I'm different. The, the challenge, it, it's not really helpful to think about how I'm different. What's helpful is to think, here's how I can relate. So when you hear somebody's had a story about brokenness or a story about addiction or a story about workaholism or, you know, whatever that, that may be, to realize, you know, we all have our ways of self-medicating. <laughs> and the principle is the same. I was blessed, in a way, I was blessed that mine was so overt that I could not continue to live with it. And it had to be, you know, there had to be an intervention. But, but a lot of us, and I find even followers of Jesus, are, are kind of living on that edge where, where we avoid giving ourselves completely to him because it would involve letting go of something that we're holding on to in our lives. That may not be a bad thing, but anything that we're putting ahead of our relationship with him and the relationships that grow out of that is a distraction. My daughter uh, is a lot like her mama, and uh, as far as lyric is concerned. And here is a lyric that she wrote on uh, holding things close, letting things go. What should we cling to? It's so hard to know. So we should hold to love, the faith, and the hope, because everything else is on loan. We keep holding things close and letting things go. Pretty powerful lyric, I'm sure, for recovering addict. And and here again, in a way, I suppose we're all an addict to something or other, you know. And then if we've got an addic- addictive personality, which I probably do, is when it, as far as work is concerned, because I do love to work, I do love to do what I'm doing. But finally, after so many years on this planet, I said, Bill, there's other stuff besides work. But this is a good story. And how long uh, How long now have you been in the pastoral ministry? Uh, about 25 years now. Yeah. And I, I've been sober for uh, a little over 30. Yeah. God's good. <laughs> I'm living proof. Yeah, and I and I I'm grateful for the privilege of sharing his story, not my story, but his. I, I think we need more of that. I I tell the folks in our congregation every week just about it. I'm the worst person in the room, so if if I can be here, you can be here. And I think you know the more open and honest we get with each other about that, yeah, the more opportunity we have to receive that amazing grace you were talking about. And it is isn't it great that the church has finally come to the place. Because 50, 60 years ago, when I was a kid, psychology was way, way over here, and theology was way over there. And if you could see me now, I'm pointing in one direction and the other. The good news of the gospel is, I think, good psychology is good theology. <laughs> and I think there's probably a lot of psychologists at this stage. You know, AA is very careful and says, you've got to reach for a higher power. Good for them, you know, good for them. And you can fill in the blank there as far as the higher power is concerned. I just read a book by John Meacham, or reread it, called American Gospel. And he basically said, even though they were not talking about a specific kind of religion, 
or and they were not talking about a specific kind of even Christianity because because obviously many of our forefathers who came here came from pretty serious Christian roots. But he was saying this experiment cannot work. Ben Franklin said it, and uh, many of the early forefathers said this experiment cannot work without a deep foundation of faith. Now they 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 painted the picture in much broader terms. And I believe that with all of my heart. Well, and the and the founders of AA, you know, the original authors of the Twelve Steps, uh, they were they were very clear about, and the, and there was scientific research to support mm-hmm. that uh, in that period of time, the only solutions they knew to alcoholism was either traumatic brain injury mm-hmm. or a spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. That, that was the only two. That's the only things that had shown. Could could lead people out of alcoholism and addiction, and so you know you don't want to go around giving everybody a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. You know the only thing you've got left is a spiritual experience. So it was designed as a discipleship program to help guide people through a spiritual experience. The reason they used more generic language was was so that they could get people through the door. Yeah. But once you once you get them through the door, that, that higher power has a name. Yep, <laughs> you know, and and uh, you know, we make no bones about you know some of us saying his name is Jesus. Yeah. If, if you need to think differently to come, I want you to have an openness, yeah, so that you can be welcome here. But but I'm going to tell you that his name is Jesus, and that he loves you, and that you can have a personal relationship with him. And and that's where that's where salvation is. And salvation is the wholeness that we talk about, the deliverance from sin that we talk about, not just the eternity, but the abundant life here and now. Right? The glorious impossible. Paul has been great. Uh, I just love hanging with you. I love drinking coffee with you. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> I enjoy it too, Bill. It's a, it's a privilege. Thank you for joining me for this episode of more than the music. For details on the Gaither Vocal Band tour dates, the latest Gaither music releases, and much more, visit us online at gaither.com. This is Bill Gaither signing off until the next edition of More Than the Music.